only Luke is with me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This Sunday happens to mark um, my 10th, my 10th time of celebrating our patron saint, St. Luke, with you all. It also so happens to be the month that marks my 40th year of being in ordained ministry. And part of me is just I'm overwhelmed with joy that the Lord has made me a part of this particular church family. And another part of me is going like, how in the world did I get to be that old? There's so many reasons to be grateful to be a part of a church that names itself after St. Luke. He's the one who talks about the gospel going to the nations. He is the gospel writer that focuses on joy, on the Holy Spirit, on prayer. But on this pass, I find myself realizing I'm grateful for what a great friend he was. And I think he would have been a good friend if I could have gotten to know him. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. This doctor had left practice apparently and become Paul's traveling companion and collector of stories about Jesus. Paul's traveling companion for a decade and a half. And as you're probably aware, Paul himself had a nearly debilitating physical affliction of some sort. We don't know exactly what it was. It might have been an eye disease. He says that the Galatians would have been happy to give one of their one of their own eyes for him. He refers to himself as having a thorn in the flesh. And people have wondered about what that was for years, whether it's epilepsy or some other affliction. The one thing I don't think we can have much doubt about is that when Paul was afflicted, it was his friend Luke, the beloved physician, who would attend to him. And Luke, no doubt, since it's an affliction that never went away, understood the limits of what his skill could accomplish. Luke is alongside Paul during the long nights of Paul's soul sickness about the well-being of his churches. Luke joins the mission after Paul has been stoned in Asia Minor and left for dead. Who else would have attended to the after effects of that beating? And who else would have applied ointments to the wounds from the number of times that Paul received the 39 lashes? And now in our reading from 2 Timothy, when Paul faces the realization that he's going to face martyrdom under Nero, 
abandoned by friends and alone. Luke is the sole exception. And so today I find myself reflecting on what they came to understand together about soul sickness that can be only addressed through the power of Jesus Christ. A soul sickness that people, especially of privilege, are susceptible to. Clearly, Luke, well, Paul, was a posi- Paul was a person of privilege. We talked about him when we read through Romans. Harvard educated in his day, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, on the, on the ecclesiastical escalator up in the circle of Jerusalem. He's the one who's entrusted with the persecution of, of the early Christians. He's a Roman citizen as well as a citizen of his uh, native uh, town of Cilicia. And his Roman citizenship isn't something that he had to earn. He was born with it. So Paul's a pr- person of privilege. And so is Luke. Luke's Greek ranks among the best that first century literature in general has to offer. I mean, he could play with Ben Lane. (laughs) And he could play Amazing Grace. He, He shows that he understands like no other writer in the New Testament. He knows the conventions of formal speech, He knows the conventions of formal letter writing. And he's not afraid to strut his stuff. Now, in his letters, Paul never tells who the luminaries are in the cities where he ministers. It's Luke who does that for us in the Acts of the Apostles as he tells Paul's story. He tells us about Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor who converts under Paul's ministry. He tells us about Gallio, the governor of Corinth, who just so happens to be brother of the philosopher Seneca, the personal childhood teacher of the future emperor Nero. It's Luke who tells us how it's Gallio who protects the faith in Corinth in Acts 18 when Paul is forced to appear before him. Luke's, and Luke is interested in privilege and privileged people. And it's really interesting that it is Luke who preserves in the strongest terms Jesus' warnings to the rich. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Matthew's blessed are the poor in spirit pales in comparison. It's to people of privilege who are able to read the most sophisticated Greek that comes to us in the first century world. It's to them that Luke recalls Mary from what she calls her low estate, singing her Magnificat, and extolling God for scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, bringing down the powerful from their thrones, and lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things, 
and sending the rich away empty. But what is so intriguing is that Luke goes out of his way to make it perfectly clear that God does not, in fact, send the rich away empty. It's only highly educated people in the first place who could read what Luke is writing. And then over and over again, Luke tells us that those attracted to Jesus Christ's gift of forgiveness and new life through Paul's preaching include rich and privileged people. In Acts 16, we meet Lydia, the purple merchant in Philippi. In Acts 17, we meet several groups of people, the not a few of the leading women in Thessalonica, the not a few of the Greek women of high standing, as well as men in Berea and in Athens were introduced by name to Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And we find out in chapter 19 that in Ephesus, he's friends with the rulers of the city, the Asiarchs. And then Luke gives us fascinating vignettes of people of privilege who get it. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who when he realizes Jesus wants to be with him, gives half his money to the poor, pays back those he's defrauded four times over when all Jewish custom called for that day was just pay back what you took and add 20%. Luke tells us about that community in early Acts. He portrays the thousands who've been baptized at Pentecost as pooling their resources and embodying an ancient Greek ideal, all things in common. But he wants us to understand that it's a voluntary pooling of resources. He compares Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas gives the proceeds from a large plot of land to the apostles to distribute. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and promise to give everything, but they hold some back. And they're not not punished for not giving everything. They're punished for the heart that says, yes, but no, not really. And they were introduced to Tabitha Dorcas, whose garment-making out of her home was life and sustenance to widows. In a sense, Luke sums up the whole of Jesus' ministry and what it means for us to live out of that ministry in the one bit of teaching from Jesus that he offers in the book of Acts that he doesn't have in his gospel. And it's when Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. All that I take to be an invitation to look back at the words of Jesus in today's gospel passage, where he is inaugurating his ministry, and to look at those words with new eyes, And maybe hear them with new ears. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, says Jesus. 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. There are different kinds of captivity, different kinds of blindness, different kinds of oppression. And for many in Luke's readership, in fact, probably for most everybody in that minority of early believers who, like everybody in this room, could actually read what he was writing, release from captivity means, among other things, no longer being possessed by possessions, not being owned by the things that you own. For many in Luke's readership, recovery of sight means seeing that the world as it is is upside down. What the world counts as wealth is really poverty. What the world counts as poverty is really wealth. That what, where others see beauty, we see ugliness. Where others see ugliness, we see beauty, especially when, when we look at the gallows when we look at a symbol of execution and realize it becomes a means of redemption and a beautiful picture of our lives stretched out to bring people together out of poverty into true wealth, out of loneliness into fellowship, out of fear and anxiety into confidence and hope. Luke is really interested in people of privilege. And I've got to say, I count myself among them. I was raised by an intact family of members of Tom Brokaw's greatest generation. Because of my race and my gender, there were lots of doors that just weren't closed to me or that I didn't have to really push that hard against. By virtue of education, I found doors opening. by virtue of the privilege simply of not knowing what it is not to be loved. And so I can relate to the way that privilege makes you see things in a certain way. And I think I know a little something about the life that Luke's Jesus and Luke and Luke's friend Paul are calling upon people like me to live. And then when I look at Francis of Assisi, I see a kindred spirit, another child of privilege, who helps me by his example to see that life is richer in imitation of Jesus' self-giving. It's Francis that reworks Jesus saying it's better to give than to receive, to it is in giving that we receive. And there are a lot of ways that we could talk about this in terms of the way we steward our whole selves, our time, our talents, and our treasures. Though it's really the smallest of things, and just the beginning of learning to live outside the limited range of vision that privilege tends to impose, learning to give, learning to be generous is profoundly sight restorative. 
It seems to be the most counterintuitive thing in the world to assume, as the Bible does, that, that because none of me belongs to me, but to the one who bought me at extravagant cost. The first 10% of my income goes to him. Automatically, boom, done. But somehow, mysteriously, wondrously, with no real formula to it, it just happens, I and others, many others over the years have just watched how when I do that, when we do that, the rest of that 95, that, the rest of that, I was cheating, the rest of that 90%, just want to see if you're going to catch me, the rest of that 90% goes much further than that 100% would have, just does. For many in Luke's readership, freedom from oppression means coming out from under the crushing burden of debt into a freedom of generous giving. You may or may not be stuck there. Many have been, and that's why our economy tanked a few years ago. If you're stuck there, I, I want you to know that that matters to me. It matters to your church, not because we need your money, but because we need you to be healthy and not under that burden of oppression. It's horrible to get upside down and feel like there is no way out. But Jesus Christ came to deliver you and me from precisely that kind of oppression. If we can be alongside you to pray with you, to talk with you, to help you find resources, to get where you'd rather be, talk, let me know. Holly and Chip Venture are teaching a crown ministry class right now. We'd love to get another one going in, in some time. During Paul's last phase of ministry, as it becomes apparent that he's headed for martyrdom, and his circle of friends is narrowing down to Luke alone. And when, by the way, the likelihood is that Luke is becoming his secretary and helping him with his wordsmithing. He, he sort of becomes, um, um, to Paul, what Peggy Noonan was to Ronald Reagan, helping him to craft what he's trying to say. And that's what happens in First and Second Timothy and Titus. During this time when Paul and Luke are working more closely together and there's like really like nobody else, Paul starts using medical language in his pastoring. He compares in 2 Timothy, he compares false teaching to gangrene of the soul. He calls true teaching sound or healthy, literally hygienic. And then he talks about love of money a word that he borrows from Luke. Love of money he diagnoses as a root of all kinds of evil, a kind of cancer that pierces your heart with many pangs. The surgery he prescribes is really very simple. 
hard to do, but really very simple. One, simple gratitude to God who furnishes, furnishes us with everything to enjoy. Tail end of 1 Timothy 6. Then doing good, generosity, and simply a willingness to share. Friends, in every conceivable sickness of body, mind, and spirit, may you and I taste what Luke the physician would prescribe, the love and healing power of God's Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise and glory of the Father's name. Amen.